0: Hey, pals, did you know that when you support your local public radio station, you are essentially paying for the reporting that affects your community? It's true. In other words, you make journalism happen. It's all you and some of us, but a lot of you. Public radio is made for you by us with your dollars. And I'd say we're pretty great partners. So support independent journalism by donating to your public radio station at donate.com. Dot nbr.org slash listen, and then share why you donated using the hashtag WhyPublicRadio, Public Radio, like WHY Public Radio. And thanks. Jillian Bauer Reese remembers the first time she ever drank alcohol. She was 17. I just was at a sleepover and we broke into
1: a liquor cabinet at somebody's house. And so um, that was my first drink. But it certainly wasn't her last. It didn't take very long. <laughs> um, by By my first night um, in college, I, I was blacking out. And pretty much all bets were off at that time.
0: And Pretty soon, Bauer-Reese's drinking
1: got out of hand. It's it's honestly uh, a little bit of a blur uh, for me um, because I was blacking out so frequently. Um, but uh, I guess somehow I was able to balance my work and then this blackout drinking. It was like night and
0: day. Somehow, Bauer Reese's daytime life wasn't all that affected by her drinking. But at night, that was a little bit of a different story. I would, you know, black out and
1: Um, end up in uh, a neighborhood that I had never been to before and not know how I got there or get in a car with somebody that I didn't know.
0: Bower Reese's family and friends knew she had a problem, but it took her a long time to realize it herself. It was a seven-year period
1: uh, of me admitting that I had no control over it and then it would just vacillate between that and then being in denial and then that and being in denial. And um, and so it, it was not until I was 29 uh, that I fully kind of threw in the towel.
0: I'm Lauren Ober, and this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on The Big Listen, we invite you to eavesdrop on some of the great conversations happening in your earbuds today. And maybe, just maybe, we help you find some new things to listen to. Jillian Bauer-Reese's story isn't one of addiction. It's about what she did after she began on her path to recovery. After getting sober, Bauer Reese created the Rooms Project. It's a multimedia journalism endeavor that documents the lives of people in recovery. Since 2014, Bauer Reese has visited almost half of the U.S. states to record people's recovery stories. Here's one of them from Tony Sanchez in Atlanta.
2: When I had about five years, I was
3: um, ma- I was a manager at a catering business. I was I was doing some really cool cool stuff. I was. And going to work in in suits and stuff like that, which is
2: really cool for someone who was homeless. You know what I'm saying? I had my own car, you know, I had a bank account, all the cool stuff that comes when you stop using, right? You know, that financial stuff.
0: The Rooms Project is part of a loosely defined genre of recovery media. There are countless blogs and podcasts out there aimed at supporting people in their addiction recovery. It just like it feels like somebody saying
1: me too, you know.
0: And sharing one story can be healing, too, which Jenny from Portland, Maine knows pretty well. Telling my story and talking to people is one of the
1: biggest things. And I'm really blessed to be able to do that pretty often. It's not easy for me. I used to think I was a really outgoing person, but it, it, it was the, the booze, basically. And I, since getting sober, I've kind of gone back to that little girl who was scared of everyone
0: and everything. <laughs> We'll catch up with Jillian Bauer-Reese of The Rooms Project in a bit to talk about reconstructing the narrative of addiction and recovery. But first, we're going to chat with someone else working on reframing narratives. Carvel Wallace is a writer known for his work at GQ, ESPN, and The New Yorker, among others, where he delves into sports, music, and pop culture. But his writing has always been firmly rooted in context. Where are we now, and how did we get here? And lately, he's been thinking about how America has gotten to this particular place in its history. But at the same time, he's been thinking about his own family's fractured history and how to come to some reconciliation. His new podcast, Closer Than They Appear, is a mashup of personal exploration of his family's past and deep thinking about America's national estrangement, all with an eye for healing or at least some kind of peacemaking.
4: I look in the mirror. And I see a man with a past, living among a people who have a past in a country that has a past. I see a man who, like the nation that birthed him, has up until today always looked toward the future, always pretended the past isn't there or that it doesn't matter. But it is, and it does. And now, in order to go forward, I see a man. And a country that has to face it.
0: Carvel Wallace, host of Closer Than They Appear. Welcome to the Big Listen.
4: So happy to be here.
0: I have a question for you. I'm curious. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, that's such a good question.
4: Um, I the first thing I wanted to be was a scientist. The first thing I remember actually mm-hmm. wanting to be was that I wanted to. I wanted to have a cure for cancer. That was I just seized onto this idea okay. one day that like wait this thing hasn't been cured yet I didn't even know what it was I just knew it was bad and right, that it hadn't right. been fixed and I was like well that's I'm gonna I'm gonna do that right. I'm gonna figure that out and mm-hmm. then um, when I was around f- maybe 13 or 14 I decided that I wanted to be an actor and I actually that I went I ended mm-hmm. up going to LA for reasons unrelated to acting but in LA I like joined all these theater troops and then I went to New York and I did experimental theater so but it was somewhere in the middle of my second year of the experimental theater program at NYU when I was standing in a studio we were working on some piece and I'm all sweaty and like all experimental theatered out <laughs> and I remembered that when I was a kid I had wanted to be a scientist and it I had this revelation that as hokey as it sounds, still guides me, which is that I realized the reason I wanted to be a scientist was because I wanted to explore the depth of unknown things because I felt like I could do that in a way that other people couldn't. And that I could bring back knowledge that was helpful to everyone. Oh so it was a little bit gosh. like a deep sea explorer yeah. type vibe. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I can do that anywhere. Like I can do that as a writer. I can do that as an artist. I can do that as a musician. And so I still feel like that is what I do. Yeah. I, I like, Dig into the dark things, and then I bring stuff back to people and say, "Whew! I went down there in the cave, guys, and here's what I found out about it, right. Our our existence, right, right. <laughs> so you don't have to go down there.
0: Yeah. You know? Well, thank you yeah. for doing that for us. Um, but the reason <laughs> the reason why I ask that is because in one of your episodes, you said that you didn't think you'd live past the age of twenty five, and so mm. I wondered, you know, at what point, um, if if you felt like I'm not going to live past. 25 is it worth having aspirations like at some point you passed being 25 and you were like oh
4: and now I'm 26 now I'm 27 yeah there's a thing that I think a lot of people do I think I feel like growing up I felt like I learned this from other black people and from people in my family there's a thing that I sometimes call balanced nihilism it's like there's a Mm -hmm. sense that everything is about to is is that it's all going to fall apart I actually think a lot of us are having to uh-huh. learn this, do this now. But I think that growing up as a Black mm-hmm. person in America, you learn this early, there's this sense that everything is gonna fall apart. Any bad thing could befall you at any point. Not only could it, it probably will. After Donald Trump got elected, me and my kid's mom decided, the first thing is we gotta get passports. I mean, we, we might actually have to flee this country, this our home, because it might not be safe for us here anymore. We did get the passports, and that was over a year ago. But we're still here, and so are you. You sort of know how to hold these two truths at the same time. Mm-hmm. One is that this terrible thing may happen, but the other one is that, okay, but I'm here now, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep doing the stuff mm-hmm. that I want to do. So you just have to, you have to balance out your nihilism with uh, uh, an involvement in life. This kind of balance stuff, I think, is a lot of what I'm exploring in this podcast and just in life. Like, how do you balance recognizing how bad things are with um, with not falling into despair? Mm-hmm. How do you balance like working for change with like a realistic assessment of how little, how how many terrible things haven't changed and may never change? Right. Uh, yeah, I think that that's a lot of how what. I think that's a lot of what being black is about. And I think that that's the case for a lot of people, other oppressed groups too. Mm -hmm.
0: Have you come to any, um, any conclusions or, or sort of any, any um, uh, principles that can guide you or, or, you know, in, in answering that, like, how do you hold on to, um, you know, uh, things will get better when you feel like maybe they haven't yet.
4: Yeah. It's, I don't, know if I believe things are going to get better. Mm -hmm. I actually don't know about that. And I, Mm -hmm. I don't have a conclusion for what to do then, for what then yet, you know? Right. Because, you know, this podcast is about me learning from the people who are guests on the show what... I'm, I'm learning how to live, mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. how to live, like how to go forward given what's happening, how to go forward in this country. What should I believe now? What should I do now? And each person I talk to has a different sort of point of view on that and a different historical basis for their point of view. And this is Shireen Marisol Miraji. So my question is, do you think this country can go forward together?
3: I do. I really do. I mean mm. I feel like people want that. People are people want human nature is to want to be a part of a group and to have togetherness and to feel like you belong somewhere that we all want that, don't we? And we do want to be in community. So desperately, I do feel like we want that. And so if there are spaces where we're creating that and we're trying to and we're reaching out to our neighbors um and we're doing it in our own small way, I think that is possible. I you know, I I don't know. I've been asking myself a question. It's not that question exactly, but I've I've been trying to interrogate myself, right? You you only I've been in a lot of therapy, Carvel.
4: So <laughs> good.
3: And you have control over yourself, right, and your own yes. your actions, and yeah. you're like, what can I do? How do I? How can I be better?
4: I haven't written the last episode of this show yet mm-hmm. because I'm I'm still processing all this stuff that I'm learning. Th- my primary goal is to stay spiritually and emotionally alive and functional, mm-hmm. so that I can be of service and bring something of good to the world and to the people around me. Whatever that is, I don't know how big what I could bring is or isn't. That's actually I don't even believe I can ever know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. I, I could possibly actually solve some kind of cancer, some right. kind of spiritual or emotional cancer. But I probably won't. I'll probably like have a positive impact on like, you know, 80 people in my life <laughs> over the course of these <laughs> years and maybe like a thousand listeners to whatever <laughs> shows that I make. <laughs> that may be it. But my goal is to, to fulfill that as much as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. And so I have to I can't do that if I'm if I'm subsumed with depression and anger. Right. And depression and anger really are things I've had to have to work against. Mm-hmm. And so my primary goal is to do what I need to do in order to keep away depression and anger and then directly right after that go to work.
0: Yeah. I I wonder how much being a father has played into you know all of the uh, the questions that you're you're grappling with, like mm. were these existential questions and 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 sort of conundrums so in such sharp focus before you had kids, or has you know as being a parent influenced you know or changed the way that you're you're approaching the world?
4: Yeah, I would say that in some ways the existential questions were in sharper focus before I had kids. And oh, okay. then having kids was like in some ways the antidote mm-hmm. to that. Cuz there is a certain amount of self-centeredness involved in in deep in like yeah. <laughs> deep hand-wringing over the existential. <laughs> sure. And I know this cuz now my kid is 14. I have a 14-year-old son <laughs> and a 12-year-old daughter and my son has just discovered that life is meaningless and he cannot wait (laughs) to tell everyone he's very excited about this (laughs) and um he you know he is just he just brings it up in every conversation he's so excited and there's a certain amount of and god bless him he's right on schedule right but there's a certain amount of (laughs) self-centeredness that is required to to wring your hands over the fact that Life is meaningless, and I always, he and I debate this a lot. This is one of his ways of sort of matching wits with me. And he'll say, well, what if, you know, what if this whole thing is, Dad, this whole thing's a simulation, and none of it matters right blah. blah." And I'll go, okay, well, if that's true, what is the actual function of that belief? So let's say it's a simulation. Fine. Does that mean I shouldn't make you dinner tonight? Does that mean, you know what I mean? Oh, my god! Does that mean that I should drive this car off the bridge, you know? And then he goes, Dad, your problem is that you're a functionalist. All you care about is function, you know, and I, and... It's, these are such great debates, but it, he's right. Because I, because I have kids to raise, Yeah, I no longer have the luxury to think about things as abstract. Yeah. They become now actual things. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know the answers, but I no longer need to know them. Yeah, I do have a feeling that I, that I know enough about what life is about in order to keep going. Yeah, And to me, what it's about in order to keep going is that We're this huge human family on this earth who has the potential for really good and really bad. But every day I get to make the decision to try, okay, now what am I gonna do to try and like add to the good side? Mm -hmm. To me, that's a good enough answer. Mm -hmm. I'm just gonna do that until I die, and then I'm gonna die, and then who knows? It'll be a big surprise what happens next.
0: Carvel Wallace is the host of Closer Than They Appear from Jetty. To find out more about the show, hit up biglisten.org. Now, if you remember from the top of the show, we were chatting with Jillian Bauer-Reese about her multimedia venture, The Rooms Project. It's an audiovisual series all about addiction recovery. The Rooms is a euphemism for the place where 12-step meetings happen. Bauer-Reese started the project about a year into her own sobriety. I was enchanted
1: by these raw emotional narratives about individuals who are overcoming an adversity against which there's so much stigma. Um, And I really related to the people that I met and I wanted other individuals to relate to them, too.
0: Not only did Bauer-Reese want listeners to understand that people living with addiction were doctors and welders and everyone in between, but she also wanted to share honest recovery narratives, not just addiction trauma. I'm trying to shift the focus
1: of these stories or shift the perception, right, um, of these people and and shift uh, the ways in which people who are in recovery and have a past uh, substance use history are portrayed.
0: Bauer Reese is an assistant professor at Temple University and teaches solutions-driven journalism, meaning reportage focused on responses to problems, not just the problems themselves. The news stream is saturated with these like
1: problem-focused stories um, and sensational stories of drug use, um, where you know we're watching like Dr. Oz go. <laughs> to Gurney Street in Kensington in Philadelphia and, like, film people uh, shooting heroin.
0: Because mainstream media doesn't report on recovery efforts as much as it covers substance abuse, Bauer-Reese argues that a lot of people aren't so sure what recovery is. And that included her husband. When he first went to rehab... He packed a bathing suit because he thought <laughs> he was going to this, like, spa, like,
1: celebrity spa resort. Right? And then he got there and he was in, like, rehab. I
0: mean, like... And rehab and recovery don't generally look like they do in
2: the movies.
0: We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll tackle another taboo topic with writer John Ronson. Porn.
2: Fabian is not a Bond villain. He's just a typical Silicon Valley guy. But yeah, he got a $362 million loan to build an empire, which was, you know, based to a large part on the handling of stolen porn, whereas the women whose porn was being stolen can't get a checking account because they're the ones who are considered disreputable.
0: But first, we talk with the host of the show, Terrestrial, about the challenges of being an eco-conscious human. Do I carry a reusable coffee mug? Yeah. Do I lie to myself that this is solving, like, the waste problem? No! That's coming up in a sec. Don't go anywhere. This is NPR.
3: Hey there, WAMU. My name's Hannah. I'm
5: driving on 95 South right now, back to Richmond, and I would like to recommend the Bodega Boys podcast. (laughs)
4: <laughs> Episode twenty six, Modega yeah. Boys in the building, live from Red Bull Studios. What? Do the drop, what?
5: live from Red Bull Studios, New York.
4: <laughs> it's your boy DJ's Nice, aka Young Chipotle, aka Pocket Say Fat Like <laughs> Terio, aka Crip Raps Port Sling, aka Butchos Butchos Gully, aka Slow But I Might Know You, aka Eli Let Be, aka Young Green Room, what? Young Day Party, DJ's H Fuego, yeah. aka You York.
5: It is two comedians. It is not safe for work. Um, and it is a hilarious perspective of current events and news. They talk about everything from Donald Trump to the basketball finals. So it's hilarious. Sounds like two guys talking at a bodega. Can't recommend it highly enough. Thanks
0: so much. Bye. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober. And if you have a show you want to recommend, call us. But don't do it from your car, please. It's unsafe. Hannah. The Podline number is 202 885 Pod1. We are especially looking for your favorite shows of 2017, so when you call us, tell us what you loved listening to this year. Now, I think we can all agree that climate change is a thing. Something else we can likely all agree on is that stories about climate change can sometimes be a hard sell. Environmental reporting can be all doom and gloom and super serious and make us want to bury our collective heads in the sand. Ashley Ahern of the podcast Terrestrial is trying to change that. She's an environment reporter, but she's not so interested in chronicling the problems of our changing planet. Her show focuses on the choices people are making in response to those changes. Like, for example, the uptick in environmental asthma. Checkup after checkup and emergency visits in between, doctors kept urging Eleanor, get your sick daughter out of there.
3: They say it's not good for her. It's not good. That place is not good for her. That's why we take, I mean, we take the decision to move. Yeah.
5: They chose to move because of asthma. Yeah. It was a huge part of it.
0: Ashley Ahern, host of Terrestrial. Welcome to The Big Listen. Thanks for having me. In the studio, in oh, the less. studio, in the real flesh, in here. So, uh, so terrestrial is a show. You guys say it is about the choices we make in a world we've changed. How are you not totally depressed? <laughs> Oh, God. If I had a nickel for every time I had this question, um, I am. Oh, so you're, what you're saying is that it's a totally unoriginal question. <laughs> no,
5: I'm saying it's like, the, it's the central question of my life, right? And it's right. the central question of the show. Is, right. Yes, it's the. Well, so the alternate tagline for the show is this is the We're Now What podcast. Uh, can you, you beep that this out? This is public radio. <laughs> you
0: work in public radio. You know the it's FCC work. rules. I know,
5: I know. Maybe you can beep it out. But it's <laughs> emphasis on the now what. And that's kind of like the way I think about the. Choices we make and how we cope with this depression is like it's not about. I don't want to do any more storytelling about how screwed we are. Mm-hmm. I want to do stories about how we act within those constraints.
0: I see. So how does that, uh, how does that play out in your reporting? Well, okay. So I covered the environment for like more than ten years for NPR,
5: and I've started realizing. I don't really want to hear the stories that I'm reporting anymore. I actually want to do stories that I care to hear the answer to. Like okay. I want to explore choices that I'm thinking about. Right. So we framed the whole first season around um, personal choices. We did an episode on the decision whether or not to have kids. Because when you look at the backdrop of climate science and climate change and where scientists say things are headed, the thought of bringing a little human into the world, which my husband and I are thinking about right, right. now, to be right. honest, um, becomes a pretty daunting one. So I was like, I want to do a story that explores... A choice that I'm making right now in my life and that probably a lot of people in my generation are. And whether or not the environment is the first factor on their list, I don't lie to myself. But like for people whom it might be, here's a show that could be helpful.
3: Hi, (laughs) My name's Mary Finley.
0: And I'm Travis Sherman. And we're at mine and Mary's house. (laughs) Tonka. Calm down.
4: I'm going to give Tonka some
5: cheese. Tonka is a (laughs) 100-pound American bulldog. And he's the only baby Travis and Mary want in their lives. The couple says they decided not to have kids out of a concern for the environment, but they each came to the decision in a different way. For Travis, it started with growing up in Las Vegas. Throughout his childhood, he was watching as the water levels in nearby Lake Mead dropped.
0: What we grow our food with, what we drink, what we bathe ourselves with, it's going to be far more important than oil ever was.
5: Then, after high school, he joined the Navy. And he started hearing people talk about resource scarcity and global unrest tied to water shortages.
0: I'm fearful of the world that we are making for ourselves. I don't see us trying to change on a large scale. And so I don't see it getting better. And that's why I don't want to have a child.
5: Reporting that episode changed the conversation my husband and I are having about it right now. Mm. Um, From one that was sort of, I would say we were like 85 to 90 percent no kids. Like probably not something we're really going to prioritize anytime soon. Um, To... Maybe adoption. Okay. Because what it does for me anyway is it eliminates the biological clock issue right. where I'm like, I don't want to take a timeout right now. Right. Psyched about all my friends sure. who are having babies, just not sure, sure. I want to want to do that. Sure. Um, and it, it kind of tackles the environment question as well because you're helping someone and maybe giving them a life that they wouldn't have had otherwise without creating another body on the planet. Right. Also, I guess you can...
0: Feel pretty good about yourself. I'm pretty smug as I sip out of my coffee <laughs> reusable coffee mug. Yeah. right, right. So no, I, that is a that is a great segue because I was wondering this like how do you not be smug yeah. in doing this? Because do you are you like yam yeah, recycling? Like no. look at my compost no. pile. Hell no, no. Listen, like
5: being environmentally conscious oftentimes is a luxury that Mm -hmm. a lot of people can't afford. And so I think that, you know, do I carry a reusable coffee mug? Yeah. Do I lie to myself that this is solving, like, the waste problem? No. But does it make me feel a little bit better today when I'm like, well, there's a lot of trash. Like, that Starbucks trash bin is full. Right. And everybody just dumped their cup as they walked out. Right. I'm not contributing to that, but I don't lie that that's solving any kind of a problem. It just makes me feel better for the minute. And you know what? That's one of those examples where, like that's okay. Mm -hmm. Right. To make that's kind of the premise of the show is like, I'm not about the guilt. It's just like, if it makes you feel better, do it. Right. If you are, if you feel like you're contributing to a greater good somehow, Mm -hmm. or if you're just making yourself feel okay in the moment, so you can think about these big picture questions, do it. You can make yourself insane
0: with this topic, as you can tell. (laughs) Right, right, right. I mean, I think that's an important thing to to think about the income and class disparity Mm -hmm. when we, because There's this idea, I feel like, that, like, the environment is a luxury to care about, but a lot of the people who are impacted by it are the poorest among us. Yes. Yes. So how do you square all that? You do more stories about those communities. (laughs) Yeah. No, really. Like, that's, I
5: mean, we've got an episode we're working on about asthma right now and looking Mm -hmm. at, like, people who are least equipped to manage it and deal with it or move out of mold infested or, you know pollen-ridden places um, are the ones that are struggling the most. Because the effects of pollution and climate change don't affect us all equally. Those who are hit hardest often belong to communities of color and are cash-poor, what Majora Carter describes as, quote, low-status communities. She's an urban revitalization strategist, and she's focused her career on environmental justice. Majora was raised in the South Bronx, which she says was considered a poster child for urban blight. She grew up... She went to college, and eventually she came back to New York for grad school, right as the government was about to turn part of her community into a dumping ground.
0: Even though the Bronx handled about 40 percent of the city's um, commercial waste and 100 percent of its own waste, um, we were about to handle possibly another 40 of the, percent of the city's commercial waste. And it was just like,
5: are you crazy? So she decided to stay and resist. I looked at that and thought, wow. This is happening because we happen to be a low-income community of color. The community came together, though, and they got the city to build a park instead of the waste facility. But Majora says all over this country, similar situations continue to happen, and we as a society aren't talking about it enough. And so what I really want to do is find more voices from those communities to help us tell those stories, because I think there's the, the other construct that's kind of fraught there is like the reporter that parachutes into a community and tries to tell the story of the victims there. And that just opens this whole can of worms about empowerment and agency and how we portray those communities. And so, you know, yeah, it's something that I do think about a lot. Yeah.
0: You know, um, I had this revelation of sorts Really well, do tell. Sort of a dumb revelation. (laughs) uh, I'm sure it was brilliant. It was just (laughs) just really a tiny thought actually that passed (laughs) over the transom. Uh, It was really a revelation, but I but I think it was one of the people who was advocating for human extinction. Yes, that
5: guy was amazing.
2: uh, We're a voluntary movement which seeks to bring about the extinction of Homo sapiens.
5: Les Knight is the founder of the voluntary human extinction movement. It's a Facebook group with about 10,000 followers for people who have chosen not to have kids in order to save the planet. And they think everyone should join them in that decision.
2: Well, that, that is the goal. But, you know, the odds are pretty slim. Uh, it hasn't really caught on.
5: Les says when it comes right down to it, humans are bad for the planet. He calls us super predators. And he says that what we see as our greatest accomplishments, you know, art, music, space travel, have no real value for the rest of the animal kingdom.
2: The Mona Lisa won't really impress a tiger, and I think we need to um, justify our existence by how we interact with the and with the other ten twenty million species that are here on the planet and it it's not looking good,
0: but I was thinking that like um you know, humans are just one species Mm -hmm. among the millions on the planet and that we're screwing everything up for every little bug and plant and furry thing and that we're just super selfish. And honestly, if everything goes to pieces, like humans aren't... The planet's going to be fine. No. It'll recover. Humans won't. No, we'll be gone. No, 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 right. (laughs) But like all the... Everything that is able to adapt far better than we are will be a okay. But I was thinking like, it was like this light bulb moment, like, oh my God, we're the worst. And I wonder if through the course of, of your reporting, obviously you've been doing this for many years, but have you had light bulb moments... I wouldn't say that there's been, like, a, a light bulb mo- moment, but there has
5: been a shift for me over uh-huh. the course of the, of the years, which before I would do a lot of stories about, like, we're going to fix this and, like, right. the Kyoto <laughs> Protocol is going to save the day and then it'll be the Paris <laughs> Climate Agreement and blah, blah, blah. And, like, you know, scientists say if we do X, Y, and Z by this time, it will it will solve this problem. And I, I don't do those stories anymore. Right. It's hard to describe. It's not. I don't, I'm not a depressed person. That's the funny thing. I just I take hope where I can find it in small pieces, but I don't have this kind of overarching sense that we are going to solve it. I just have an increasing faith that we are going to figure out how to adapt, like all the animals that are going to have to figure out how to adapt on this planet as we change it. Um, and that adaptation could look really interesting, and it will change the makeup of society, possibly, and it will change where people live on the planet and how many of us live on the planet. I'm so stimulated by the questions and the challenges that this this. Ex- existential threat poses to us Mm -hmm. that I I
0: find really fruitful ground for storytelling. Ashley Ahern is the host of Terrestrial from our pals at KUOW in Seattle. To find out more about her show, check out BigListen.org. Well, it's time for another quick break. But when we come back, we'll chat with writer and filmmaker John Ronson about the knock-on effect of internet porn.
2: I was really interested in consequences. I've noticed over the years that on the internet, people don't like to think about consequences. We like to do whatever we want to do on the internet and then just not think about it.
0: That's coming up next. Stick around. This is NPR. Hey, pals. I know you don't have a ton of time in your crazy busy schedule. But somehow, every week, you manage to carve out some of your precious time for us. And I guess for you. Because public radio is like a little escape for you, right? A spa for your ears, maybe? A pedicure for your brain? No, that doesn't work. Anyway, if listening is your me time, support the show that brings you moments of zen, Or at least moments of joy and delight. Give generously to your station at donate.npr.org slash listen. And then tell us and the world why you gave using the hashtag WhyPublicRadio. That's W-H-Y Public Radio. And thanks.
1: Hey, I'm Sean Lasseter, and uh, I'd like to introduce you guys to a podcast called The Black Russian. It's uh, by a really cool duo and buddies of mine who speak on all sorts of
5: relationships and uh, the goods and the bad, the pitfalls and struggles and how to deal with it.
3: So I don't like... Uh,
5: the word polyamorous at all. Like, I don't ever voluntarily use it. I just
3: dislike it. Right. Uh, Maybe there's a different term for the word open.
4: Non-monogamous? Conscious non-monogamy?
5: No, I think it it should be honest versus open.
4: Right, but that would then say that people who are in monogamous relationships are honest, and that's way too
0: broad-stroking.
5: I think it's something that we all kind of really need more than we know so check it out thanks
0: hey pals welcome back to the big listen i'm lauren ober and is there a podcast that really set your ears ablaze this year well we want to hear about it dial up the pod line at 202-885-POD1 and tell us what your favorite show of 2017 was was it ear hustle dirty john something i've never heard before i don't know but you do so let me know Welsh author John Ronson is known for his own brand of gonzo journalism. In his books, he investigates folks at the fringes, conspiracy theorists, psychopaths, even members of a secret New Age military unit. That last book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, was adapted into a movie in 2009.
3: So what you're saying is that you were a a psychic spy... A Jedi warrior.
0: Recently, Ronson has embedded with another community on the margins, porn performers. But in his audio series, The Butterfly Effect, he's not interested in the seedy side of pornography, though that does come up. He's interested in how technology has impacted the adult entertainment industry, particularly the advent of free pirated porn, which all started with a man named Fabian. Fabian.
2: Back when Fabian was a teenager in Brussels in the 1990s, he had an idea. Because of that idea, some people in Montreal eventually started to behave differently. As a consequence, other people down in the San Fernando Valley started behaving differently, and so on. For a year, I've been tracing Fabian's butterfly effect. If I kept going, tracing consequence through to consequence, where might I end up?
0: John Ronson, host of The Butterfly Effect. Welcome to The Big Listen. Hi, it's nice to be here. You know, I wonder what your understanding of the porn industry was before making this show. What did you think it was all about and 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 who participated in it?
2: Right. I mean, I kind of assumed that it was full of damaged, exploited people, people who'd mm-hmm. had kind of terrible childhoods and were, you know, uh, had to, move into this sort of shadowy community because they were they were damaged. And, you know, there's a certain amount of truth to that. But what I didn't realise is that, you know, the other place where you'll find damaged people is, is everywhere in the world. You know, we're, right. all, we're all damaged. Right. So that was one thing. Um, we deliberately, my producer Lena and I, did deliberately chose uh, the San Fernando Valley, which is the most collegiate and respectful and sort of kind-hearted corner of the porn community. We were concentrating on the consequences of the tech takeover of the porn industry. So if our show had taken place in some really nasty corner of porn, then it would inevitably have become a story about that. I've been noticing something strange ever since I got into town. Almost always you see the same women on set for maybe a couple of weeks or a few months and then they just vanish. Women like Macy May, 23 years old, who I am now rendezvousing with in a car, in a parking lot, in a Starbucks, in the Valley. When did you come to Los Angeles? Um, The end of
1: May, so I've been here for a few months.
2: When you first came, were you getting work?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, oh, June was good. I had like 10 shoots in June, but then July and August were terrible, slow months. So the only girls that are consistently getting work right now are probably Mark Spiegler's girls. There's probably only about 20, 25 girls that are consistently getting work. The rest of us, we're lucky to get in three shoots a month.
0: Um, what drew you to this particular industry and the, and the folks who are in it?
2: I was really interested in consequences. I've noticed over the years that on the internet, people don't like to think about consequences. Mm -hmm. We like to do whatever we want to do on the internet and then just not think about it. And I was in a hotel lobby in Los Angeles meeting a porn star. I'd never met a porn star before. And the receptionist said, your guest is waiting for you downstairs. So I, I went to the lobby and everybody else in the lobby was dressed exactly how I dress, yeah. which is inconspicuous right. James Purse hoodies, basically. <laughs> Except for her, she was dressed as this kind of great mad peacock. She looked so otherworldly and amazing. And I walked towards her and as I was walking towards her, I glanced over at the hotel receptionist and he was looking at her not realising that anyone was looking at him. Mm-hmm. And the look on his face was one of total contempt. It's like you can handle porn people when they're safely tucked away on their computers, but not when they're in their actual vicinity. What's so interesting is that, so after the hotel lobby, I started reading blogs by porn people because I became interested in what their concerns were. Uh-huh. And the same name kept coming up. They were all very annoyed with this man I'd never heard of called Fabian. Right. So Fabian is this tech nerd from Brussels who basically came up with the master plan to give the world free porn. Have you ever thought about the kind of butterfly effect? Because obviously when when Pornhub became so huge in the late 2000s, there must have then been a a butterfly effect that would then engulf the existing porn world in the San Fernando Valley. Did, Did you ever think about that stuff? A lot of people in the industry made less money, there's
4: no question. I do not know how many companies closed, I'm sure many did. To be honest, I, there's, there's, it's hard for me to say what else there might have been. I, I have talked to a lot of people and I know that a lot of people are upset about uh, how this all developed and how it is
2: continuing today.
4: Right. But uh, yeah. So the main I,
2: thing was the kind of movement of money, I guess, from the San yes. Fernando Valley up to Montreal. Yes, you could say that. That that was definitely the biggest change. Yes. You know, how how do you feel about me going down into the San Fernando Valley and trying to find out what the real Butterfly Effect is? And and would you be curious? Yes, uh, of course it would be interesting.
0: You know, he, he seemed really blasé about the ripple effect of his business endeavors. But
2: of course, Fabian isn't any different from any other tech utopian out sure. there. Sure. Um, they're, they're all the same. Like, at one point, I said to um, the head of Pornhub's mobile division, or the former head of Pornhub's mobile division, Brandon, I brought up the fact that they got rich on the back of the handling of pirated porn. And, you know, this huge flow of money went from the old porn people in the San Fernando Valley into their pockets. And Brandon sort of sighed, annoyed, like, and said their livelihoods, like, okay, you want to talk about their livelihoods. And I, and I realized right. that annoyed sigh was the was the amorality of the tech utopian. Right. In that annoyed sigh, that's kind of my entire season encapsulated. <laughs> At one point, I said to uh, Fabian that, that, you know, some social scientists believe that erectile dysfunction has gone up a thousand percent in right. young people because they all watch Pornhub all the time. And Fabian's response to that was, well, maybe I should invest in the pharmaceutical industry. Right,
0: exactly, exactly. You know, you're talking about how Fabian, you know, he was able to secure a multimillion dollar loan to grow his company. Meanwhile, the performers, especially female porn performers, had a hard time even getting credit or opening a bank account. And how these women walk out in public and and
2: people scorn them absolutely and i guess the message that i want the butterfly effect to show more than more than any is think twice about who you should consider reputable and who you should consider disreputable Mm -hmm. because fabian i say, and fabian is not a bond villain he's just a typical silicon valley guy but yeah he got a 362 million dollar loan from a Group called Colbeck Capital to build an empire, which was you know based to a large part on the handling of stolen porn. Whereas the women whose porn was being stolen, as you say, can't get a checking account because they're they're the ones who are considered disreputable.
0: Do you, I would think though that you know the sort of democratization of pornography. I mean, really, anybody with. A phone could make something. And the ubiquity of it and the accessibility of it would have led to some type of destigmatization of the business, but that hasn't happened.
2: The one place where stigmatization has diminished is that younger people who've grown up with Pornhub are much less kind of screwed up about sex mm-hmm. than people of my generation. When I was a kid, if you wanted to view, pornography, you'd have to like rummage around underneath a bridge by mm-hmm. like, looking, you know, in the hope of finding some kind of ripped out page from right. you know, Hustler or whatever. But not anymore. Um in fact the very first time I ever heard the word pornhub was my son, when he was twelve, came home from school and said, Everybody at school is talking about Pornhub. <laughs> so that, you know, so that you could argue has a positive side, which is, you know, eighteen year old kids are less screwed up about sex than fifty year olds. Um, But one negative side of that is loads of 18-year-old women are now, oh, well, I'm going to work in porn. It's normal. I've grown up with it. And so they come to the valley, shoot a few porn scenes for a few weeks and then have to leave because they're not going to get any more work. But even for that, porn people are still extraordinarily stigmatized
0: yeah you interviewed a a nurse who a a man who had done porn and then became a nurse and was working in a hospital loved it and then people recognized him and he lost his job
5: I went to school I got a job at you know a major hospital here on the med surge floor you know there were DNR patients which is do not resuscitate so the family would be there and then they expire And you watch that happen and you see the family right beside you crying and they're holding my hands and they're holding on me. And it's tough.
2: But just when Dale had found himself of use, something weird started to happen. Passers-by on the street and inside the hospital were doing double takes. He was being recognized more than he's ever been before. And he knew why. I started noticing
5: every scene I've ever done. My very first... You can watch you know, 3,000 scenes, 4,000, whatever it was, you can watch them all for free. Everything I've ever done on the internet for free.
2: Right about when Tommy Gunn was telling me how well things were going for Dale, Dale got a call from the hospital's HR department.
5: And I said, hey, we, got a, we got a question for you. It's pretty rhetorical, but is Dale DeBone and Dale right? the same person? I said, yeah. And I said, well, you're a liability. We gotta let you go.
0: I felt for him because people do all kinds of jobs for all kinds of reasons and sometimes they just do it for money and want to move on to, to do something else. But not a lot of us are doing jobs where our neighbor's kid could look it up on the computer.
2: I mean, just maybe though. I mean, the fact that you've got, you know, kids growing up on Pornhub feeling less disturbed by sex less screwed up by sex just maybe in the future that stigma won't be quite so quite so there
0: Right, although I mean, if we're saying you know people feel less screwed up, but then you're talking about how the there are very high levels of erectile dysfunction, um, and that people feel like what they're watching is real and not fantasy, um, and so <laughs> so it's like six of one, half a dozen of the other, yeah. isn't it?
2: But I did feel I felt terribly sorry for those people, like it because it's all it all it's all down to hypocrisy. I mean, how do? school teachers who used to be in porn get found out somebody recognizes them from watching porn right they're, <laughs> right they're right. victims of the hypocrisies of others and the and the cognitive biases of others
0: John Ronson is the host of The Butterfly Effect from Audible to find out more about his show or any of his other work go to biglisten.org Well we've almost reached the end of this week's episode Ugh. What? But before we let you go, it's time for C-H-A-R-T-O-G-R-A-T-H-Y Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the Apple podcast charts. But we're not looking at number one or even number 100. We're looking at number 289. And if your podcast has reached number 289, well, holy smokes, that's good because there are a billion podcasts out there. I mean, not quite, but almost. For real. Okay, so this week's 289 is called Girl Boss Radio with Sophia Amoruso. Hey, it's Sophia. According to Wikipedia, Sophia Amoruso is a quote American businesswoman. So she started a vintage shop on eBay, which was called Nasty Gal, and she made heaps and heaps of money. You
3: know, mm-hmm. power is not given to you, you have to take it.
0: Then, <gasps> Twist, her company. Went bankrupt. Bonkers. It couldn't have been better. So I'm getting ahead and behind of myself here, but. Basically, the upshot of all of this is that now she is remaking herself. Guaranteed to be just, it's going to the be, they just ever. keep
5: getting better.
0: Exactly. Yeah. She has started an enterprise called Girl Boss Media, which is a quote unquote platform that will include an editorial site, a newsletter, and a podcast. Oh, cool. I listened to an episode with a woman named Kristen Bellstrom, who is an editor at Fortune Magazine. Um, they talked a lot about how Kristen was. Was from Vermont. I've been to Vermont. I really like this town called Vergennes. Have you been there? I was still a little bit confused about like what Girlboss Media is, so I went on their website and it says Girlboss Media was founded for women redefining success on their own terms. It's something that everybody should be reading. Yeah, it's a bunch of women talking about how they've learned from failing and then they succeeded. To me that feels very new. Yeah, I guess if you want some inspiration in your life, um, you can listen to Sofia Amoruso, whose company went bankrupt, but now she has a podcast. So, bully for her. Want to listen to The Big Listen on the go? Well, you can. Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and hit subscribe. And then we will slip right into your feed every week. And won't that be fun? Also, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Here big Listen. That's H-E-A-R Big Listen. Listen. Should you want to send us a holiday e card, our email address is biglisten at wamu.org. We also accept paper mail. Hint, hint. The show today was produced by Daisy Rosario Ponce Rutch and Abby Holtzman. Jake Cherry mixed the show. I, Lauren Ober, was trying to figure out the math on that tax bill. Still can't do it. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army Navy, the band, not the store. Special thanks to my number one guy, Hans Anderson, for pitching in this week. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady, Andy McDaniel, and her boss man, J.J. Yore, and is produced by WAMU and American University and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a few final thoughts from Jillian Bauer-Reese, a Philadelphia journalist who's been trying to flip the narrative on how the media covers substance use. The Rooms Project is her multimedia look at recovery in America. The recovery community is is
1: large, and there are a lot of different kinds of people in that community um, who you might not expect to find there. And second to that, I, I would like people to know that there are so many different pathways to recovery and so even if, you know, they've tried it once or twice and, and it didn't stick, there there are other options out there for them.
0: And if you or someone you know need help with substance abuse, the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence has some great resources. org. Thanks for hanging out, pals. Till next time, keep listening, America. This is NPR.